Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sober, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to Show 320. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today, sure. First up, we have Science News. Mr. JJ Campanella kicking off this new year with his first, very first Science News of 2014. Then we have the main fiction, which is called Flashbang Remembered by Caroline M. Yakim and Tina Connolly. Then right at the end, we have an interview with Graham Ainsley. Graham is the the boss, the man in charge of Space Merchants. If you want those retro, vintage science fiction books, actual physical books, yes, paperback books, remember them. Graham's the man to go to at spacemerchants.co.uk. I've got a great interview with Graham coming up as well. That is, oh, that is, that, that, come on, man. Sofanauts is launched. The premium members club for Starship Sofa, the ultimate private members club for Starship Sofa. And we'll be talking about that coming up as well. There you go. That is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So first up, Mr. JJ Campanella, the first one of this brand new year, Science News. Jim Squire. Greetings and new annual felicitations, my trachantuous listeners, and welcome to this January 2014 Science News Update. I'm your host for this greatly great science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Happy New Year to everyone out there. I hope that the coming year brings you all that you dream and none of the lousiness from the last year. Let's get right into it here. The first story of the night excites me because I'm a serious fan of the original Star Trek TV show, and slightly less of the next generation, but the one thing that I always envied were the replicator devices. I've always thought that it would be so cool to be able to build just about anything to your specifications. That's why I love the idea of 3D printers. Whether they print cells to create an organ or plastic to make a plastic dinosaur, these are the first steps toward real replicators. In fact, since I described a 3D polymer printer to my five-year-old son and what it can do, yes, especially in the toy realm, he has been hounding me to get one, probably much like I did with my dad when personal computers were first introduced. Well, according to the Science Trade Journal Lab Manager, we are another step closer to Star Trek-type replicators, well, closer than we've ever been at least. Dr. Joshua Pierce and his team have built a low-cost 3D metal printer at Michigan Technological University. Going the route of Linux and Mozilla, the detailed plans, software, and firmware are all freely available and open-sourced, 
meaning that anyone can use them to make their own metal 3D printer. So far, the products he and his team have produced are no more intricate than a sprocket, but that's because the technology is new and raw. Pierce says, quote, similar to the incredible churn and innovation witnessed with open sourcing of the first plastic 3D printers, I anticipate rapid progress when the maker community gets their hands on it. Within a month, somebody will make one that's better than ours, I guarantee it. Pierce's innovation is not the metal printer itself. Commercial metal printers are already available, and big companies use them. However, they cost about $600,000. Pierce's innovation is the price. His group used under $1,500 worth of materials, including a small commercial welder and an open-source microcontroller. Pierce's team built a 3D metal printer that can lay down thin layers of steel to form complex geometric objects. His make-it-yourself metal printer is actually less expensive than off-the-shelf commercial plastic 3D printers right now and is affordable enough for home use, he said. However, because of safety concerns, Pierce suggests, quote, for now it will be better off in the hands of a shop, garage, or skilled DIYer since it requires more safety gear and fire protection equipment than your typical plastic 3D printer, unquote. As I was thinking about how cool this thing is, it occurred to me that there is certainly a dark side to it as well. And I'm not just talking about accidentally burning down your own house. While metal 3D printing opens new vistas, it also raises the specter of untraceable homemade firearms and other weapons. Some people have already made guns, apparently, with both commercial metal and plastic 3D printers with rather mixed results. I have little doubt that this is going to be a, a long-term worry in the community of makers, and uh, certainly a long-term worry as far as law enforcement is concerned. At any rate, in previous work, Pierce's studies have already shown that making products at home with a 3D printer is cheaper for the average American, and that printing goods at home is greener than buying commercial goods. In particular, expanded 3D printing would benefit people in the developing world who have limited access to manufactured goods and researchers who can radically cut the cost of scientific equipment to further their science. Pierce said, quote, Small and medium-sized enterprises would be able to build parts and equipment quickly and easily using downloadable free and open-source designs, which could revolutionize the economy for the benefit of many, unquote. Pierce's work is described in an article called A Low-Cost Open-Source Metal 3D Printer, and it's going to be published at the end of this month in the engineering journal IEEE Access. The next story has to do with aging, and at least one explanation for why mammals age. Not that every other animal doesn't age as well, but this story is more specifically about mammals. Dr. David Sinclair of Harvard Medical School published a study in late December in the journal Cell that examines aging at a molecular level. Sinclair says, quote, The aging process we discovered is like a married couple. When they are young, they communicate well. But over time, living in close quarters for many years, communication breaks down. And just like a couple, restoring communication solved the problem, unquote. Well, I understand that analogies are important, Dr. Dave. I continually use awful ones in my lectures to make points or simply keep the students awake. But I would be very careful with simply assuming that old married couples no longer communicate. I've actually found the opposite. More often than not, my wife is pretty much in sync with me after 20 years of marriage. 
Anyway, ignoring the social aspects of the silly analogy, Sinclair has found that as communication breaks down in cells, aging accelerates. By administering a molecule naturally produced by the human body, he found that communication was restored in older mice. Subsequent tissue samples of these mice showed key biological hallmarks in those old mice were comparable to those of much younger animals. The mitochondria is referred to as the cell's powerhouse in just about every textbook from grade school on up through college. Mitochondria generate chemical energy to carry out essential biological functions. They live inside our cells and house their own small genomes with their own DNA. They have long been identified as key biological players in aging. Researchers have implicated dysfunctional mitochondria in a whole series of aging diseases, from Alzheimer's to diabetes. It's been thought for a while that because there's a breakdown in mitochondria as they age and mutate over time, that there's no way to reverse aging in old animals. Sinclair focused on a group of genes that make a family of proteins called sirtuins. Previous studies from his lab show that one of these genes, SIRT1, was activated by the compound resveratrol, which is found in grapes and red wine and certain nuts. Although, frankly, I find this an oddity because most of the data on resveratrol has lately been found to have been concocted and made up, like I reported on this in previous podcasts. At any rate, let's ignore the stuff about the resveratrol and assume that SIRT1 really is important in aging. Sinclair has been looking at mice with the SIRT1 gene removed. These mutant mice should show more signs of aging, including mitochondrial dysfunction. However, the researchers were surprised to find that most mitochondrial proteins coming from the cell's nucleus were at normal levels. It was only those proteins encoded by the mitochondrial genome that were reduced in production, that is, the DNA of the mitochondria itself. Sinclair investigated potential causes for this oddity, and he discovered an intricate cascade of events that begins with a chemical called NAD and concludes with a key molecule that shuttles information and coordinates activities between the cell's nuclear genome and the mitochondrial genome. Cells stay healthy as long as coordination between the nuclear and mitochondrial genomes remain intact. CERT-1's role is an intermediary, sort of like a security guard, It assures that a meddlesome molecule called HIF-1 does not interfere with communication. For reasons that are still not completely clear, as we age, levels of NAD decline. Without enough NAD around, CERT-1 loses its ability to keep tabs on the nasty molecule HIF-1. As a result, the levels of HIF-1 escalate and begin wreaking havoc on otherwise smooth cross-genome communication between Again, the the, uh, nucleus itself and the mitochondria. Over time, the research team found that loss of communication reduces the cell's ability to make energy and signs of aging and disease become apparent. Sinclair hypothesized that if NAD was given early enough in the communication breakdown prior to excessive mutations being accumulated, that within days some aspects of the aging process could be reversed. Sinclair examined muscle tissue from two-year-old mice that had been given the NAD-inducing compound for about a week. They looked for indications of insulin resistance, inflammation, and muscle wasting. Those are all signs of old age. And in all instances, the tissues from the old mice resembled that of six-month-old mice. 
in human years, that would be like a 60-year-old converting to a 20-year-old in those specific areas. Sinclair says, quote, It's certainly significant to find that a molecule that switches on many cancers also switches on during aging. We're starting to see how that the physiology of cancer in certain ways is similar to the physiology of aging. Perhaps this can explain why the greatest risk of cancer is age. There's clearly much more work to be done here, but if these results stand, then certain aspects of aging may be reversible if caught early, unquote. The researchers are now looking at the longer-term outcomes of this NAD-inducing compound in mice and how it affects the mouse as a whole, like if they grow extra legs or something, I guess. I don't know. Sinclair is also exploring whether the compound can be used to safely treat rare mitochondrial diseases or more common diseases such as type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Longer term, Sinclair plans to test if the compound will give mice a healthier, longer life. At the moment, there are no plans to do any kinds of tests on humans. Not that I have any hopes of getting in on these tests. I suspect it's way too late for me anyway. Staying on the medical stuff, the next story is actually very cool. From a medical genetic standpoint, there are a whole series of genetic diseases in which a mutant protein simply doesn't function because it's misfolded. Correct folding of a long strand of protein is very important because the folding determines the correct final 3D shape of the molecule. The actual activity of the protein is determined by that three-dimensional shape. But not only are there proteins whose activity is killed because of a mutation, worse, there are proteins that still kind of function even though they're misfolded. But those misfolded proteins are misrooted within the cell and get set to the wrong place and don't work because they're not in the right location. Dr. P. Michael Kahn and his team at Oregon Health Sciences University have found a way to use small molecules that enter cells fix the misfolded proteins, and allow those proteins to move to the correct place and function normally again. This may be a major breakthrough in the treatment of a whole series of previously untreatable genetic diseases. In mid-December, Kahn's work was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy. Kahn and his team perfected the process in mice, carrying them of inherited male infertility. The identical disease occurs in humans, and Kahn believes that the same concept can work to cure human disease as well. Kahn says, quote, The opportunity here is going to be enormous because so many human diseases are caused by misfolded proteins. The ability of these drugs, called pharmacoporins, is to rescue misfolded proteins and return them to normalcy. And it could someday be the underlying cure of a number of diseases. Drugs that act by regulating the trafficking of molecules within cells are a whole new way of thinking about treating diseases. Unquote. As I said before, proteins must fold to three-dimensional shapes in precise ways to do their work in a cell. Work by Kahn and others reveal that when the proteins are misfolded, the cell's quality control system misroots them within the cell and they cease to function only because of that misrouting. Pharmacoporins can fix misfolded proteins and thus make them functional again and have them delivered to the correct place. This has been previously observed in a test tube, but this is the first time it's been seen in a live animal. Kahn also states that, quote, these findings show how valuable laboratory animals are in identifying new treatments for human disease. 
We expect these studies will change the way drug companies look for drugs since current screening procedures would have missed many useful pharmacoporin drugs, unquote. A wide range of diseases are caused by an accumulation of misfolded proteins. Among the diseases are neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and Huntington's chorea. Other diseases include certain types of diabetes, inherited cataracts, and even cystic fibrosis. Of course, Khan says that he wants to expand his test to humans as soon as the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approves, but that may not be very soon. He's obviously hoping that the effect that he's found is not limited to mice. One of my favorite sets of lectures in my medical genetics class are those dealing with human sexual development. I enjoy these lectures because most people are so smug in what they think their understanding of male and female is. Most people have no idea all the genetic diseases that can lead to seriously screwing up something that we think of as being very simple. In fact, in some cases, children who suffer from these diseases do not even discover there's a problem until they reach puberty. For example, there's the disease of androgen insensitivity. These are XY males whose body's inability to react to testosterone dooms them to infertility and a female morphology. If you looked at these individuals, everything about them would tell you female, including genitalia. However, you would only be able to tell that they are not females if you actually did a gynecological exam and a sonogram. They have no traces of uteri or ovaries because they are not female. In fact, they usually have internal testes that are never fully developed. Here's another genetic disease, which relates to the next story. The presence of the SRY gene on the human Y chromosome is absolutely required for an XY male to develop as such. The SRY gene is called the testes determining factor. If the gene is naturally mutated, you once again get, as with androgen insensitivity, what is called a pseudohermaphrodite developing, which looks like a human female, but again, does not have ovaries, etc., if the SRY gene is accidentally transferred over to an X during mistakes in meiosis in daddy and a female with XX chromosomes gets it, then those affected will develop into what is called an XX male, also known as De La Chapelle syndrome. These poor XX males present as physical males with small testes, but they are also sterile. They do have some feminine characteristics, such as varying degrees of breast growth and puberty, but they have no vaginal openings, ovaries, etc. Most interestingly, studies of the psychological state of those affected with De La Chapelle syndrome suggest that most XX males do not grow up stereotypically feminine and are typical boys and men in terms of their psychology and libido. So, doctor, is it a boy or a girl? Uh, let's not be too hasty. Why don't we just wait and see about that? Well, researchers in Japan have recently taken advantage of new technology that allows you to knock out, that is, completely get rid of, targeted genes in developing animals. If you do that, you can specifically study the effects of eradicating a particular gene without waiting for mutants to arise naturally. Dr. Shuji Takeda of the National Research Institute for Child Health and Development in Tokyo, just published a paper this month in the journal Science Reports. Earlier this year, 
Takeda presented the first knockout mouse made using the new Talon Genome Engineering Technology. He realized that he now had a tool to finally target genes on the Y chromosome and study them closely. The sequence of the Y chromosome is highly repetitive, a characteristic that makes it notoriously difficult to study since the most commonly used method for creating knockout mice relies on homologous recombination. And that's a process that is unpredictable in highly repetitive regions where you have lots of repeated DNA. Talon technology relies on a sequence-specific endonuclease comprising a bacterial transcription activator factor called TAIL and a nuclease domain from FOC1, a restriction endonuclease that cleaves DNA in a very specific location. When two talons bind DNA, the nuclease domain creates a double-stranded break in the DNA. This creates a cut and is repaired by non-homologous end joining, which then allows insertion or deletion at the cut site. The talon method can be used with DNA binding domains as short as 45 to 65 residues in length, making it ideal for working with the SRY gene. Talons can be injected directly into fertilized oocytes to create knockout mice. Takeda says, quote, We believe talon enables us to make knockout mice for genes that were difficult, if not impossible, to disrupt previously, unquote. Using this talon technology, Takeda's group created XY mice lacking the SRY gene. Those XY mice without SRY had female genitalia both externally and internally, and blood testosterone levels similar to those found in females. The animals went through estrus and copulated as females, but they were either infertile or just had reduced fertility because they could not have any offspring. This result is obviously different from what was seen in humans that had the simple SRY mutations, but no one has ever completely knocked out the SRY from a human, so it's possible we could get the same effect there by knocking out the SRY entirely. Further examination of these mice ovaries showed that they had a reduced number of egg precursors and also contained mature egg follicles where the ova hadn't been released. Takeda and his group are particularly interested in these unreleased eggs since infertile women often have a higher incidence of these follicles, indicating that SRY knockout mice might be a useful model for research on human infertility. The Talon method is also cheaper and faster than traditional methods. Takeda further states, quote, it enables us to use knockout mice as a screening method in a small lab such as ours, unquote. His group is planning to use the Talon technology in the future to identify master sex development regulatory genes based on a whole series of candidate genes that they've found in earlier expression studies. So for those of you who missed the December mini-cast of this podcast segment, Found only on the archives at uvilaaudio.com, this final story of the night will be a rebroadcast of that December story. Also, this final story is actually related to the previous story on sexual development. Dr. Mina Wrighton of University College London has just published a paper in late November in uh, Nature Communication that examines brain differences between human males and females. And she has found that there are some profound differences in the way the brain cells of men and women function. The idea that the gender of a brain actually makes a difference to its structure has been quite controversial for years, and it has gained and lost support over time 
Political forces especially have suggested that no differences exist between men and women. But science is the great truth-teller and ignores politics. I just saw the movie Man of Steel. I found it amazing that the Kryptonian ruling council ignored Jor-El, their leading scientist, when he kept telling them that their planet was about to destroy itself. Here's the most important scientist on the planet telling these people that their planet will soon blow up in huge shooting lava flows, and they don't think that's very imperative. My point has less to do with Superman or Krypton than it does with the fact that science is important, because it tries to bring truth into our world. It tries to understand the basic structure of the universe. We ignore that truth at our own risk. So what is the truth here? Dr. Wrighton has conducted the first large-scale study to investigate the genetic underpinnings of sex-based brain variation, reporting significant gender differences in expression and RNA splicing of genes in certain brain regions. She says, quote, The differences in gene expression between the sexes is much more widespread, both in terms of the number of genes involved and the number of brain regions involved than we had necessarily guessed. The most interesting part is whether that gives any insight into neurological disorders, particularly because there are very well-known sex differences in many neurological diseases. Might some existing treatments be more effective in men or women? Unquote. Let me give some quick background before we get any farther here. Remember from previous podcasts and your introductory biology classes that mRNA is the messenger RNA that is made by reading the DNA code. mRNA is an intermediary messenger molecule that goes to the ribosome, which then decodes it and makes proteins. The proteins do all the heavy lifting and controlling cell growth and cell physiology. Well, to add a layer of complication, those mRNAs can actually allow a single gene to produce more than one protein. A eukaryotic gene can potentially produce multiple proteins because the original message can be edited and re-spliced together in a variety of ways to make other messages. This is why there are so many more proteins in a human, for example, than genes. We have three to four times more proteins in our cells than actual genes. We only have about 25,000 or so genes. This was discovered by the Human Genome Project, and truthfully, the scientists who found this out were very, very surprised. Well, Wrighton decided to look at the differences with how the mRNA messages were spliced together in male and female humans. In short, do male and females make different proteins? Previous studies have looked at fewer than 20 brains, and in most cases, only a handful of different brain regions. Wrighton examined 12 regions, like the frontal cortex, the occipital cortex, the thalamus, the hippocampus, from each of 137 healthy brain samples. That was 101 males and 36 females. These samples came from the United Kingdom Brain Expression Consortium. Her team isolated total RNA from the brain tissues and analyzed it for expression using a procedure for looking at hundreds of transcripts at once. This is called chip array analysis. Chip arrays are ordered matrices of DNAs that are derived from transcripts. These little spotted bits of DNA that are made into matrices allow you to examine expression differences between tissues and among hundreds and hundreds of different genes. 
Wrighton and her group found 448 genes that were expressed differently between the genders, 2.6% of all the genes expressed in the central nervous system. All major brain regions showed some gender variation, and 85% of those variations were due to mRNA splicing differences in males versus female brains. Wrighton states, quote, What's key here is that there are an awful lot of autosomal genes that are involved in generating sex-biased expression patterns, unquote. Autosomal genes, if you may remember, are all the genes on the non-sex chromosomes. Those are autosomal chromosomes. Many of these genes play a role in disease. For example, the study identified expression differences in NRXN3. That is a gene linked to autism. NRXN3 has two major forms produced by alternate RNA splicing. One, called the alpha form, was expressed similarly in males and females, but the other, the beta form, was expressed significantly less in women and much more highly in men, and only in the thalamus. Wrighton speculates in the paper that this could explain the higher incidence of autism in males versus females, though to confirm this, they would need to examine whether this difference in splicing occurs in young people as well. The team next looked at entire gene networks. They tested 71 central nervous system-related gene sets and found significant differences between the sexes. In one example, females had enhanced expression of two immune-related pathways in their white matter of their brain, perhaps providing a clue to why multiple sclerosis, an immune-related white matter disease, is more prevalent in women. So the question is, do these genetic differences have any greater meaning in terms of social, sexual, and gender differences? Wrighton is hesitant to talk about greater social implications. Certainly, there are all sorts of questions involving human sexuality, including those of homosexuality and transgenderism. However, she says, quote, My perspective is not so much to make social commentary about these issues, but more whether it gives us insight into disease or not. I simply want my work to improve basic neurological research, unquote. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Remember, don't make any guns in your 3D printer. Don't judge a female or a male book by its cover. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, Jim. What can I say? Have a fantastic year. I hope we will see you every, every month you'll be on. And, you know, keep bringing out these science news. Jim, what can I say? Thank you so much. So, months in the planning, it is finally here. Sofa Notes, premium members club for Starship Sofa. This is, again, you've, God, you've heard us bleed on about it enough there. This is kind of one of the kind of main, hopefully, main legs that'll keep the District of Wonders and Starship Sofa going. This is a premium member club where if you join up and it's a monthly payment of £6 a month, you will get all, all sorts of goodness Every time you kind of log in, hopefully, everything will be free once you kind of join up. And like I say, it's been months in the planet to kind of get this right, you know what I mean? And first off, uh, you know what I mean? What can I say to Scott, Amy and Josh, you know what I mean? 
all of them have just been instrumental in kind of helping out. You know what I mean? Just have a look at the design, what Scott done, and then the site itself, and then all the kind of nice words. You know what I mean? <laughs> I can't bloody write. You know, Amy did all that. So, oh man, massive thank you to kind of get this up off the ground and running. And I'm just, it looks and works fantastic. You know what I mean? And I hopefully you'll enjoy it. You know, you come over and you kind of sign up and. You, you know, you, you do that. You should do the right thing and support Starships over. Keep this going, but this is one way where I can kind of say thank you and give you something back. Do you know what I mean? I did it a while ago with the kind of just the do you know the kind of monthly donations, and that'll still be running if you do want to kind of come on this. Do you know what I mean? If you just want to kind of go down that route, that's brilliant. You know, what I mean? they do that. You know what I mean? But if you want, just like I say, just to get a little bit more out of science fiction, what we are kind of all get here, you know what I mean? If you want to kind of come and join me in there and just enjoy, you know, the conversations and everything like that, this is the place to come. So I'll give you a little heads up now, if you'll bear with me, what you can, you know, you get. Like I say, you, you, giant, you join up, £6 a month, and you can kind of cancel any time you want, and you'll just get, you know, I mean, once you cancel, you'll not get anything, you know what I mean? There'll be no, you know, all the kind of events we've got planned, they'll be gone. But you just keep your, your membership rolling. You know, it's my intention just to kind of keep on putting stuff in here, keep on filling it up with kind of fantastic stuff. So you'll you'll join up and then there'll be a, a members only area. Now, this is where you'll go to, to you know, everything I kind of want to do, any kind of content material, anything like that. This is where you go. And already, you know, as soon as you join up, I'm prepared to give the whole of Starship Sofa's kind of back content away. So you get Starship Sofa's. What, what's in there at the moment is volume one, two, and three of Starship Sofa's. So then I've got the Tales to Terrify book in there. Then we've got the 100, 101. Actually, that's only actually is 101 shows in, but it's near around 100 because I've lost a, a one or two, I'm sure, of the originals with myself and Kieran and then myself by myself. <laughs> And then I think Amy did one as well. So that's there, you know what I mean? And there's just hours and hours in that kind of one little download. There is just hours of content of kind of me and the old fella talking away and then Amy as well, you know. Then we've got the two writers workshops in there. That's, you know, if you're kind of, and there's, there's hours of video in there. We've got the time travel lecture and Hunger Games lecture. That's why Dr. Ian. Actually, on the, the sofa notes, it's Dr. Amy Sturgis. It's, it's official. Then we've got Amy's Sherlock Holmes and science fiction lecture as well. And there's a few more I've got to kind of get in there. And then we're just going to keep on adding. So any interview I do with somebody, you know, I'll pop it in there. Any stories we get, any kind of audio stories, they're going in there. And there's a calendar. So I'll be able to kind of, like, say future events. And the first one to announce is on the 9th of February. We are having a live video interview with David Brin. And Amy is taking that as well. So how cool, <laughs> gives a little bit of pressure off me. Amy's going to interview David Brin. It's all done on video live. So if you want to kind of get that, and there'll be, like say, loads more of those kind of interviews coming up. I'll just give you a heads up who I've got planned. We'll be doing a one with Al Reynolds, and I'm trying to get Al Reynolds and Peter F. Hamilton and Adam Roberts all on the same kind of live interview, you know, video conference table. But <laughs> science fiction writers, you can never trust them with technology. 
Peter F. Hamilton has got the worst broadband speed in the kind of known universe. So we've got to wait until the kind of the government pipes in a, a direct like a feed to him to the village where he's at. So we'll see how that goes, anyways. But I want to get Michael Moorcock, you know Terry Bisson, Kim Stanley Robinson. I would love to get Joe Haldeman on there again. You know what I mean? That was kind of fantastic. Ken McLeod said he would. Adam Troy Castro and Will McIntosh. There's loads. Kind, you know what I mean? If you just want to kind of come over and just sharing the kind of live experience or just even the experience of, you know, watching them or listening to them at a later date. Because like I say, they'll be all put in that kind of members download area and... You know, for there, for there, for as long as you want, you know, because you can actually download them and keep them. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying that. It's just the, the videos are, are, you know, are kind of big monster things, and you just probably want to watch them where you can download the audio. You know, like say the time travel lecture, you can watch it, or you can download the audio and just kind of, you know, go with that, however you feel. Then we've got the ship's log. This is the captain's, you know, blog, blog you know, in these modern terms. And this is where, you know, I'll be kind of putting everything, you know, letting everyone know what's coming, what I've just, you know, put into the members only area, what's, you know, what's happening, things, who's coming on, stuff like that. We've got a calendar that'll just kind of give you, you know, a, a direct instant hit of what's, what's got planned. But that's the, the ship's logs is where we will kind of, where we'll call home. This is where you'll land and you'll kind of come in and just kind of mix and mingle because there'll be a comments page. We've decided to go for comments instead of forum. Just because that's the way we kind of, we've worked with, honestly, it's been kind of in the making, this kind of site and this members only area and everything like that for oodles of time. And that's the kind of way we thought it best to go. So it's just comments on there just to keep them in that one place instead of, instead of like a kind of a forum based message board. So that is, you know, like you say, the premium content. And... There'll be like freebies as well. I've got, if anyone checked on Facebook, you know, I've got oodles of kind of signed copies and signatures from people. And, you know, even like when we first Starship Sova first won the kind of Hugo Award, you got this little kind of, I got loads of little booklets and everything like that. And I got like a, a metal pin, like a pin badge. And I got one again. And I should have, I'm sure, have we been nominated three times? So there should be three, but I've only got two. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? I'm bloke, man. Can I remember where my socks are? Actually, I lost my bloody slippers if anyone sees Facebook. You know, lost them. There, God, Christmas slippers lost. Man. So that is Sofa Notes. Like I say, it is live now. Pop on over there. You can do it by credit card or you can do it by PayPal. It is hopefully going to be a fantastic time. Do you know what I mean? So excited by it. You know, it's just a good, to do all these events, you know, like you see, I've, I can, some of them I might put out through event, you know, Eventbrite and sell them. But I want to kind of really concentrate on bringing the, you know, the quality to the sofa notes. You know what I mean? So if people want to come, the join sofa notes. And like I say, there is a ton of stuff in there. The whole kind of Starships over back catalog must be a couple of hundred quid easy. Do you know what I mean? You get that straight away when you, when, you know, as soon as you kind of your first little six quid gets that signed up for you. So there you go. Think about it. It will be honestly. We just help us out. You know what I mean. Help me out. Help the show out. Help the shows out. And hopefully, it'll be a fantastic experience for you. Now then, main fiction. It is by. 
Caroline M. Joachim and Tina Colony. Connolly, sorry, Tina. And it is called Flashbang Remembered. Give you a little heads up about Tina and Caroline. Caroline is a photographer and writer currently living in Seattle, Washington. She's published about two dozen fantasy and science fiction short stories in the markets that include Asimov's Lightspeeds, In the Zone and Daily Science Fiction. In 2011, she was nominated for a Nebula Award for the novelette Stonewall Truth. Tina is a writer in Portland, Oregon, which Tina <laughs> describes as splendidly green in Drizzly City. She was born in St. Louis and has lived in Northern California, but mostly where she grew was the lovely college town of Lawrence in Kansas. She has a husband, a cat, a young son and 2,000 books. And we all live in an, an old house on a hill that came with a dragon mural in the basement and blackberry vines in the attic. <laughs> Tina, we call them weeds over here, man. Blackberry vines. There you go. This story is narrated by our very own Diane Severson. Diane Severson Mori. Diane sings, teaches voices, teaches voice, narrates. Diane, shall I try that again? I'm not even going to edit this. You know what I, mean? I should be able to know what you do by now. Diane sings, teaches voice, narrates poetry and stories and produces a podcast on science fiction poetry. She blogs for the fun and professionally. She's the wife and mum of a three-year-old. Now, I've seen that little three-year-old grow up. Yes, twinkle in, in Diane's eyes. Now he's three-year-old. Wow, Diane. And like I say, Diane does the Poetry Planet for Starship Sova. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Flashbang Remember by Tina Connolly and Caroline M. Joachim. Read by Diane Severson. Red-haired mother, with her sharp nose and freckled chest, leaned low over the hydroponics channel and declared that the dead plants were Girl 23's fault. When I was your age, I planted tomatoes too, said red-haired mother. But I forgot to refresh the nutrient supply in the water system. Yes, that's right, I forgot to add nutrients, agreed father. Girl 23 thought of him as short, chubby father, and she wasn't too fond of him. We had just left Earth, and one of the astrogators let me hang out with him and watch the stars. He was teaching me navigation, and I went every free minute I had. And I totally forgot about my plants, and they died, finished Mother. Just like yours did. But I learned a valuable lesson about responsibility. Girl 23 looked up mutinously. I didn't forget. Now, now, said Mother, protesting is natural. I wouldn't admit it at first either, said Father. He looked at Mother, and they smiled. Girl 23 scowled and crushed her gardening glove in her fist. She wanted to scream. I didn't forget my plants, you idiots. Something clogged the drain and they got waterlogged. But she kept her temper in check because otherwise red-haired mother would start in on childhood sequence number 112. Remind child of the time you lost your temper and broke your handheld. Follow with the admonition that anger is unharmonious. Girl 23 was thoroughly sick of childhood sequence number 112. She was also sick of red-haired mother but she had another three months before a new one would be assigned to replace her. Father eyed the crumpled gardening glove and said hastily, It's good to make mistakes, daughter. That's how we learn and grow. And you know we love you no matter what. It was standard reassurance number one, 
But unlike some parents, girl 23 knew he meant it in his clumsy way. It wasn't his fault that parenthood was a six-month shift where people rotated in and out before they could learn anything that wasn't in the manual. Father patted girl 23's head, then turned to mother. Say, Marie, speaking of our childhood, did you hear the news about the child? Mother picked up one of the limp yellow plants and dropped it in the compost. Daughter and I were busy going over algebra this morning, she said. To girl 23, she added, I would help you with hydroponics, but I lost my knack as an adult. It's okay, muttered girl 23. Normally, she would protest that she didn't need red-haired mother's help, but father was trying to steer them to childhood sequence number 202, where adults discussed important news as a distraction technique. Usually, this was deadly boring, but not if it was about the child. Girl 23 hoped mother would play along so she could find out more. She was pretty sure she would. This mother did everything by the book. So you haven't heard? Father prompted. No, what's happening to him? Mother said. They're pulling him out of stasis, said Father. We'll all get to finally meet him, and they're going to record him becoming an adult, record his whole life, so we can have more than just childhood in common. We will always be able to share his memories and learn from his mistakes. We will understand each other in true and perfect harmony. Girl 23 dropped the tomato plant she was pulling. Record him forever? His whole life? Are you serious? Serious as the broken arm I fractured on the ceiling of the zero-grav chamber, said father. Boy, that hurt, said mother. Mother and father touched their arms, remembering. Girl 23 ran down quarter M12 with her gardening gloves, still balled up in one hand. Record him. Record him! She charged past a cluster of grown-ups holding cups of coffee, startling them. One laughed. I once bowled over a physicist on B35, he said. And then they all laughed, remembering. Girl 23 ducked into a systems maintenance closet, slid the door closed, and threw herself on the floor. It was bad enough to be the only kid on ship. It was worse that she was being recorded. All the adults on board from 17 to 80 had been vat-grown with a single imprinted childhood. The child was a sickeningly perfect paragon who killed his plants but learned responsibility, who broke his left arm in the zero grav but learned caution— The process kept kids from getting in the way, and shared memories promoted harmony and understanding, traits the colony was big on. Then, forty years ago, Syke had decided it would be good for the women to have a female childhood to remember, to counter the inevitable dysmorphia of climbing out of a vat at seventeen and suddenly discovering you are a woman. There was a numbered process for that rehab, too. Thus, the parade of girls— and girl 23 was not insensible of the honor and duty of her position. But lately, that didn't seem to be enough. The fact that everything was recorded choked her, suffocated her. Oh, her rebellious thoughts were safe enough, too fine-grained to store or remember. But her emotions, her experiences, her activities, knowing that she was being pruned and groomed like one of her tomato plants colored every thought and motion— That knowledge had been too much for girls four through seven, and also for fourteen and nineteen. None of the others had made it as far as girl twenty-three. 
They had all failed in various ways. No one held it against them. They were simply wiped and re-imprinted with the child's perfect, non-neurotic childhood. Girl 23 made it through some days on sheer determination not to let the colony down. Besides, they had promised her it was only until she turned 17. One more year. Until a few minutes ago, she had believed them. Girl 23 pulled her hair aside and ran her finger of the tiny slot in the base of her neck. She could feel one edge of the alloy case that housed her chip. A chip that would feed a delightful and well-balanced childhood into every single woman vat-grown on ship. Women who wouldn't have to go through this. Women who would come out of the vats and live their own life without anybody turning everything they did into a learning experience. Anger seized her, and she rummaged through the tools in the maintenance closet until she found a metal pin dangling through a metal hole on one of the shelves. She shoved her hair out of the way, and after several failed attempts, managed to angle the pin into the tiny indented button that would release the chip. It snicked out, and she seized it with her fingernails. Her chip. It didn't look big enough to hold her memories didn't look significant enough to be every memory that every woman born on the ship would need. She could break it right now and be free. But she didn't want to. It seemed too much like destroying her actual memories, though she knew perfectly well that destroying the chip wouldn't change anything in her brain. It didn't matter. She looked around the storage room. Way in the back, she found a small plastic container for housing other disks, bigger disks. She dropped her chip into it, closed it securely, and programmed the front label. Tomato plant study. Yes, that would do. It was the first thing she had ever done that no one else would ever know. A week went by, and nobody noticed that her chip was gone. This should have been good, because if nobody noticed, she could get away with it. But instead, she was frustrated because it hadn't changed anything. All the adults were as obnoxious as ever, with their little in-jokes and their stories that they all knew and she didn't. They had memories she would never know. Memories where they said one word, pineapple, was a particularly common offender, and it was enough to trigger a wave of hysterical laughter, and she would never know them. There wasn't going to be a magic moment when she woke up and belonged to that club, a moment when she suddenly fit in. She didn't have their childhood, And that was always going to make her an outsider. As much as the adults made her mad, she'd been alone for 16 years and hated that. Now, with her chip gone and nothing changed, it occurred to Girl 23 that no one would ever understand her. Not until they started imprinting other women with her memories, and it would take years of simulation and debate before Psych could approve that. By the time the first batch of women was actually grown, she'd be dead— or at least old. She pressed her forehead against the wall, thinking. She wanted the child's memories so she could fit in. She needed to go back to the tank and be rebooted, childhood sequence number 999. Therefore, she needed to do something worth rebooting. She needed to fail. Girl 23 didn't know how to fail. She'd spent her whole life trying to do what the enormous ship full of adults expected of her. Doing the opposite was bizarre, foreign. She was supposed to be on her way to study chemistry with Alicia. She liked Alicia, 
Alicia had even been her big sister for six months, back when Syke thought that would be useful. Girl 23 spun around and marched the other way. She was deliberately disobeying. At any moment, an adult could step out from a corridor and identify her truancy. But she reminded herself that while the adults certainly seemed to know everything about everything, they probably didn't actually keep tabs on her schedule. She wouldn't if she were an adult. Besides, she could be out on an errand, or Alicia could be sick, or... Girl 23 sternly reminded herself that her goal was to get caught. She decided to head for the lounge on M35, a place she had no business being. It was an area where adults hung out and talked about boring stuff while they drank coffee. Her current father liked to go there while she was somebody else's problem. He'd take a handheld of the approved child psychology literature to study, but really he just chatted with the other adults that came there on breaks. This current father was somewhat lazy. Regardless, he'd see her and she'd get in trouble, because he wouldn't want to be caught slacking, and things would come to a head. It was perfect. When she got to the lounge, there was a huge crowd. Everyone swarmed around one central figure— She moved closer, trying to see. The boy was tall, with a shock of black hair. He stood with the splay-legged, cautious stance of the newly risen. But only one newborn callow seventeen-year-old would be of this much interest. The child. A fluttery, nervous feeling lurched up in her as she realized. There he was. Him. Him. Amidst that crushing, pressing pile of ravenous adults. The ship's charter encouraged harmonious behavior, which included not elevating any one person above another. But this was the child. Of course, everyone wanted to meet their past, the author of all their childhoods, even the ones that were hanging off on the sidelines pretending to go about their business wanted to meet him. He looked bewildered. All this adulation must be strange to him. He'd been a nobody before. One child in a sea of children, one of the many chipped to find the perfect childhood to use. How odd to wake up and find yourself so popular. But then, he must have been well-liked before to be chosen as the one. He saw her. She was half-hidden behind a tall chair, trying not to be obvious, trying not to press in with the others. But he saw her. With imprinting and the required adjustment period— Women never came out of the vats until they were 19, and girl 23 looked young for her age. Of course he noticed her. Hang on, he said, and disentangled himself from his fans. She cringed as he drew everyone's attention her way, but then she remembered that she was trying to get into trouble. You must be the girl. The doctor told me about you. He grinned at her and it was like a bit of grow light flashing through all the fluorescence. This was her chance. She could say anything to him, ask him if he hated his chip, tell him what it was like to follow in his footsteps, ask if it was better to have only one mother, or if it was the worst of all possible worlds. But the thing that came out of her mouth was, What does pineapple mean? He looked at her curiously. It's a fruit, I think. Why? Her annoyance rose sharp and fast. Fine, you won't tell me either? That's just mean. He grinned. Maybe this was a game. 
Maybe he was teasing her for fun. The thought made something flutter inside. They said you were interested in plants. I think they meant obsessed. I'm not obsessed, she said. She changed the subject. Are they really going to record your adult life, too? Looks like it. A strange flush that passed over his cheeks, even though he spoke easily enough. Did he not want to be recorded either? He looked down at her. What do you mean by pineapple? It's one of your memories. The adults all say pineapple, and then they start laughing, she shrugged. He looked blankly at her. I vaguely remember asking for pineapple once in the cafeteria. I'd read about it. The ship didn't have it. That's supposed to be funny? I guess so, she said. It seemed strange that the child himself didn't even know the adult's jokes. How could you not fit in when everyone looked up to you? When everyone kind of was you? Behind him, a stubby figure approached. Oh, crud, she said. Short, chubby father. She slid sideways, keeping herself hidden from short father's line of sight. Listen, I'm sick of being recorded. I took out my chip and hid it, and then I skipped my lesson. I thought maybe if I was bad enough, they'd tank me. Do you think that would be pretty bad? The child laughed. I hid my chip three times before I figured out that the one they stick in our neck is a decoy. He cocked his finger at her like a gun, a gesture a lot of the adults made. It's a standard part of growing up. Oh, great, she said, thoroughly annoyed by his laughter, by the information, by her inability to do anything new. Childhood sequence number 500, I bet. The child looked puzzled. Short, chubby father popped out from behind the child and took her arm, a big smile on his round face. Finally, a chance for childhood sequence number 604, he said. I thought we'd never get there. He waggled a finger. You've been too well behaved. What are all these sequences, said the child. Father grinned. Obviously, you remember when we skipped English. Stupid Mrs. Blosky and her lame sentence diagrams. Yes, said the child faintly. Of course, we skipped English. He looked at short father as if he were a puzzling tomato plant, dead of some uncertain cause. The parental response to that behavior is a teaching lesson, or what, back in our childhood, we called punishment. Number 604, right you are. Short, chubby father pointed a finger at her like a gun and mouthed, Bang! The child shook his head as if trying to clear it. He nodded at girl 23. Sorry, he said. I don't think you'll like number 604. Girl 23 did not like number 604 one bit. It turned out to be scrubbing the sludge out of the water purification and recycling unit. They drained whichever half of the room she was working on, but it was hot and damp, and the sludge felt like it was seeping into her pores. It smelled like chemicals, and her hands turned red and pruney instantly. Worse, it had a thousand tiny crevices to scrub with a small brush, and she couldn't even get her back into it and work out her annoyance because the wall filters were too fragile. She had a week of it to do, two hours each morning all for skipping one class. 
She wondered if they'd planned to dole this punishment out in stages, and that she'd ruined that plan by not getting into trouble. Thus, all the punishment at once, and the filters were particularly gross, as if they'd been waiting for her. She hated scrubbing, and she hated even more knowing that her delinquency had been planned, hoped for. Someday all the women would remember how they disobeyed the schedule and were punished, and short chubby father had been lying in wait all this time with his manual, ready to apply this punishment when she finally rebelled. She was irritated to discover that she was predictable. It made sense that the adults were, since they all had the same background, but she was different. She was cleaning a stubborn bit of green-black slime off of one of the filters when she heard the door slide open. She knew who it was without looking up and was suddenly nervous. She'd seen the adults hanging on him, being obnoxious. She wasn't like that, so why was she nervous? Logic told her it might have something to do with being the only teenage girl on the ship, and he was the only teenage boy, really. The other recently detanked boys might physically be the same age as him, but they didn't count. They were adults, and they'd gone through the whole detanking and reintegration process, something the child clearly didn't need. Well, except the physical therapy part of it. She eyed how he stood splay-legged, arms spread to keep his balance. He'd been tanked longer than anybody ever had, but even if he walked funny, he was the only one who could really understand her. It was like she only had one chance to be cool. Still, three whole days before he came to check up on her? So not cool. He should have come much sooner. He might be the coolest person on the ship, but she was sort of the second coolest, so there. She looked up at him and said, I see you're tired of your fans. He kicked at the sludge. When I was ten, I thought being famous would be cool. By the time I was fifteen, I knew it would suck, and it does. Kick. What can I ever have that's me again? Everyone knows everything about me. Broken arm? Check. Name of teddy bear? Check. Stupid time I ran up to the wrong mother? Check. Oh, I did that, said girl 23. I was too little to know what rotating mothers meant. I ran up to the old one, and she was off duty, hanging out with some guy who was not any of my father's. Is that what you did? He peered down at her. You really don't know? No, I just had one set of parents. It was old school, but I guess... There was some lady who looked like my mom from the back, so in front of a whole crowd of people, I ran up and grabbed her legs and shouted, I pooped all over myself! Oh. Girl 23 couldn't help it. Laughter broke out. He kind of grinned, but then he ducked his eyes and studied her sludge-covered brush. I found out why pineapple's funny, he said. Do you want to know? Oh, duh. A hint of red crept up his neck. Apparently, the grown-ups turned it into slang for asking someone if they want to have sex, since it doesn't exist. Let's go see if the cafeteria has pineapple. Oh, she said. She didn't want to embarrass him more, so she scrubbed some. Finally, she said shyly, So, do you have a name besides the child? Yeah. 
They wiped it from the recorded version to keep it more generic. He kicked the wall. It's Nick. I don't know if I can get anyone to use it, though. They just talk about me as us all the time. Nick, she said. When I was little, there were other kids around, too. They mostly called me Bang. He cocked a finger at her and mouthed the word. But now... It's not so cool when everyone else does what you do, she said. She felt clever for realizing that, and she wondered if there was something magical about being not yet adult that made them immediately understand what was cool and not, even when no one told you. A nickname, said Girl 23. I want a nickname, too. Something sharp and flashy, like Bang. Heck, even Nick was sharp. Better than Girl 23. And then, shyly, will you give me one? He considered for a moment. Yeah, I will. But I have to get to know you first. I've never done anything particularly flashy, she said. Not like you and your hijinks. Not like the time in the antigrav chamber. Why did they pick me? He burst out. There were a dozen other chipped kids left by the time we made it to 16. Because you were perfect, she said. Thinking of all the girls who hadn't made it. Thinking of how hard she'd tried and tried. But I wasn't. He shook his head wildly. They hang the embarrassing memories on me and laugh and walk away, but they clutch at the good ones and take them from me. He kicked one of the protruding ridges of tiled metal. It was better before I was tanked. Everything was mine. I don't want all my best memories to be theirs, too. And they always will be, if they keep recording you, she said. It probably wasn't the best thing to say, but it slipped out. His fists tensed, and suddenly he climbed up on the tiled ridge that separated the part of the room she was cleaning from the undrained water on the other side, balancing on his wobbly calf legs. The ridge was rounded and slick with sludge that she hadn't gotten to yet. I hate them all, hangers-on. They take from me. This is mine. This moment is mine. He walked on the high ridge above the tank, his arms spread wide. She admired his balance and thought of the broken arm. You're not as clumsy as they say you are, she said. He turned, irritated. Can't you be the one person who doesn't bring up all my memories? But turning around had off-balanced him. He tried to steady himself, but his toe cut a pipe, and then she saw him fall, as if in slow motion, hanging for a moment in the air before he splashed into the tank. She shouted and grabbed for him, but he was too far from the side— and she was too short to reach far enough over the ridge. Fresh out of the tank, he didn't have the muscles to swim. He was flailing and sinking. Girl 23 ran to the panel by the door and pounded on the controls. Through a combination of vague memories from her safety course and blind luck, she managed to drain the tank. The ship would probably have to ration water for a while, but she doubted anyone would hold it against her. She helped him climb back over the ridge watching the mixture of humiliation and anger on his face. He climbed out on shaky legs, spat water onto the floor, coughed, then coughed so forcefully his whole face reddened as he strained. Between gulps of air, he said, That's mine. (laughs) All mine. And she stared at him until he looked up at her, not knowing what to say, and then suddenly his expression changed and he doubled over again, gasping with laughter. (laughs) 
mine. He chortled. Um, <laughs> she laughed and threw down her scrub brush. Come on, she said. I'm tired of being punished. I want to show you the ship. His face was still wet, still red, and his clothes were dripping. He moved toward her, and she leaned back unintentionally, unsure of his motives. But he just took the small towel she had been using to dry her hands and started running it over his skin and clothes. I've seen most of it. It hasn't changed too much, except where they've moved the walls around in 8G. Oh, of course. Dumb. But no, no, I want to show you the hydroponics bay, she said. I know the updates there are new because all the newborns come in and say, Holy cow, look at this. They don't do that about other things. Really? He said, and his eyes lit up and she understood because, oh, did she love the bay. She grabbed his damp sleeve and dragged him down the corridor, down to her favorite spot on the ship. They ran past a group of coffee-clutching adults who, chuckling, all said, Do you remember when I... And they tore down the corridor to the hydroponics bay, and she banged on the plate to open the door, and laughing wildly pulled him into the room. Nick stopped and stared. It was never this grand before. He moved in, reaching out to touch the plants gently, as though he was afraid they'd disappear under his fingers. It was never this full of green. And you care, she thought. You love the plants just like I do. And some of your love rubs off on everyone in the ship. And they all come here and stare in awe. It's not enough to make them stay for good. And as they reintegrate, they find their love of astronomy or cooking or nursing. But first, they all come, flush with your memories, and their jaws hang open in a small rush of wonder. Come see the genetics lab, she said. Nick followed her, touching leaves with tender fingers, the towel draped casually over his damp shoulder. Wait, didn't you have tomatoes? The drain clogged and they got waterlogged, she said. I composted them and I have to start over. I haven't messed up like that in ages. Or they did it, he said sagely. You have to mess up, you know. Anger flared. And they would be so stupid, wouldn't they, to drown them and then accuse me of neglecting them? She stomped to the back of the bay, where the lab was. It was nearing lunchtime, and the room was empty. Just as well, she didn't want to see Tessa and William, whom she liked, fawn over Nick. Nick was hers, in some inexplicable way. They understood each other. She wasn't technically allowed to be in the lab on her own, but she didn't care. She'd failed childhood by trying to be their perfect child. But here was Nick, and he was brave. He was bold, and it was like she was standing on a tiled ledge above a tank of sludgy water when she said, Let's make a plant. He didn't ask if they were allowed. He sat down in the chair next to her. They were alike, and she was brave like him. They had to do things to get in trouble for. They had to make their own memories. They were the doers. She called up the program that she had seen Tessa use. What sort of plant should we make? He furrowed his brow leaning back and crossing his arms. They grinned and cocked a finger at her. Bang. Something carnivorous. Her fingers flew as she showed him the program. 
showed him how they could combine the stored genetic information in the lab, run simulations on the computer before trying something in the reality of the incubation chamber. It was barely even a complete plant when he asked how they turned it from a computer simulation into an actual plant. In the chamber, she said. Then, like stepping off an anti-grav cliff, she asked, Should I hit create? He grinned. Duh. She hit the button. Now we look through the window. All they would see at this juncture was microscopic cells being combined, of course. But they looked in and saw nothing, not even moving servos. Girl 23 studied the extra panel on the outside of the room. Oh, I think I have to adjust this, she said. She remembered Tessa talking about cranking the heat up and down. And there was some program she ran over here to tell it to make its own adjustments. And she thought that program was named Beta Grow. And when she typed it in, the machine took it. Is it supposed to catch on fire like that? said Nick. She looked through the window with a sinking stomach and saw a column of flame. Oh, crap, she said, which was, of course, when Tessa and William returned from lunch. The scientists leaped into action to stop the blaze. The inside of the incubation chamber was black and charred, and when they opened the door, a wave of gray smoke billowed out and suffocated the room until it was sucked up into the upper air vent. William pulled on his hair and despaired of all their current and future projects as only a die-hard scientist could. Before Girl 23 could explain anything, her parents were there, along with the psych doctor she usually talked to about homework, and then suddenly everyone important on the ship surrounded her. They discussed her as if she were a plant, and suddenly there was consensus that this called for sequence number 999. And she knew what number 999 was. Girl 23 didn't want to be wiped. She wanted her own memories. But the more hysterically she cried, the more disturbed they got. Who was this entity that screamed and cried and threw a fit? Normally, people didn't do those things. And somehow, no one remembered the fit that the child had thrown when he was nine and found out he wouldn't get to see planet fall in his lifetime. The experiment had failed, and her chip wasn't going to be used, and suddenly she was in the newborn wing, kicking and screaming, and they were dragging her to a tank, and Tessa's voice was reassuring her that she'd be back on her feet and in the lab before she knew it, but next time it would be better. Oh, so much better. Red-haired mother was nowhere to be seen, far away lest anyone connect her with this utter failure of a girl, but short, chubby father was still at his post, looking distracted and saying, Oh, daughter, this will be better in the long run. Behind him was snub-nosed mother from long ago, the only mother she had ever loved, railing at the powers that be. What is so wrong with her that you have to do this? I thought you understood that not everyone comes in one size fits all. And the tubes and wires were arranged, and her arms stuck up with needles, and she was in the jelly, and the lid was being closed. Way off in the distance, she saw a man dragging Nick away, but their eyes met, and she tried to call out, M-12 storage room! But her lips were already numb, and her fingers, toes, and throat were falling away, failing her, dissolving into grainy colors, then silver, then white. 
It was white for what seemed like days until she thought she would lose it, and surely it had been white forever and would always be white. Then she saw the face of a boy in a silvered mirror, and she was that boy, banging with a rattle. No, no, remember, remember, he was. And where was his one and only mother? But the boy returned, insistent. Surely she had always been the boy. It was the soundest sleep he had ever had. He woke to a white room with a soothing picture of a train rumbling across green hills. He knew it was a train, though he had never seen a train or hills, and he had certainly never seen that picture. He tried to move, but his muscles were weak, too weak to pull him upright. Had he clumsily hurt himself in the zero grav again? He'd been so much more cautious after the broken arm. A nurse appeared at his bedside followed by a doctor, and the doctor he suddenly did remember, though it seemed like it was in a dream. Felicia Anderson, said the doctor. Your name is Felicia Anderson. He shook his head. That's a girl's name. The doctor was flashing a pen light in his eyes. Check your memory. You'll find that as a female you received the standard memory adjustment package. You should have memories of spending three months in psych, getting used to being female, and making a smooth transition. There is always a little adjustment left at this stage, but we expect it to be minimal. I remember, she said. Now that the doctor said it, she remembered these new memories of waking up for healthy psych adjustment, and behind that all the normal childhood stuff, like the broken arm. But behind that, something else? I was a girl. The doctor and nurse were stiff, watching her warily. You are a girl, he said. Rather, a woman. You are Felicia Anderson, and you are to spend time today with PT and in psych. You'll be on your feet before you know it. Felicia put a tentative foot over the side of the bed, then the other. Sitting up made her feel woozy, as the blood rushed around to strange places. Everything felt so weak. She slid to the floor, trying to stand, balanced on wobbly ankles and knees for a few seconds. The doctor and the nurse caught her before she could collapse to the floor, eased her back onto the bed. Just practice moving your limbs before you try to go anywhere, the doctor said. Cruz, stay with her. It was so strange. Standing, she felt attacked by two sets of memories. One told her she was too short, too female. Her balance was wrong. The other told her she certainly was a girl, but she was too tall, too heavy in the wrong places. She seized at those memories. They kept slipping away from her, though at the same time there was a vividness and honesty to them. She was a girl, a very special girl, a girl who had a purpose and who never did anything wrong. I killed my plants, Felicia said suddenly. The nurse looked relieved. Yes, he said. You killed your plants. You forgot to add nutrients and they died, but you learned responsibility. Felicia remembered a row of yellow moldy plants waterlogged and dead, but she looked at the nurse's relieved face and didn't say anything about that. I learned frustration, she said. She had been angry and there was sabotage. Yes, very frustrating, the nurse agreed. He had Felicia extend her fingers, move her arms, 
It's one of the child's key memories. We learn a lot from it. The child, yes. But she had two sets of memories, and both sets told her that people usually only had one. The earlier memory, the crushed memory, that she could feel in her muscles, in her bones. That memory told her that most people's memory was of the child. She replayed those vivid moments that seemed most recent. Plants dying, a corridor, preparing to take out her chip. But why had she done that? She backed up. The chip, the corridor, the plants, the child waking up. The child, a tall boy, whom she felt a kinship with in both sets of memories, as though she understood him and he understood her. Maybe everyone felt that way. But something in the back of her mind repeated, Go see the child. All trails ended with him. She found him at last in the hydroponics bay. She should have looked there first, because he was standing at the back, his hands stuffed in his pockets, looking sideways up at her. She remembered now in her bones that that meant he was nervous. And she also remembered a time when she didn't know that, though she couldn't remember any more of that memory. He was tall, as tall as she remembered being herself, in those memories where she was him, and she broke her arm and killed her tomato plants and ran giddily through corridor B-35 with a length of blue cord for a tail, knocking grown-ups down. She smiled ruefully at that memory, just as the grown-ups did, and suddenly she remembered she was a grown-up, but she was still looking at him, and looking at the globe he held in his hands. It's for you, he said. It's for you, Flash. They told me Felicia, she said, and she took a step towards him. You told me once you wanted a nickname, and when you set the lab on fire, it just sort of came to me. Flash. I think it'll suit you. She paused, trying to remember the fire. Instead, she remembered something else. Your chip. Gone, he said. I convinced Psyche to record a more modern adulthood, that mine was too outdated. The future won't see us. He was smiling, and she pressed her fingertips to the cool surface of the globe, collecting his offering with shaky hands. The globe contained a tiny plant, smaller than her hand. It balanced on a miniature column, its roots threaded into shoots for food and water. It was blue and coiled, and had a bud-like head with a fringe of white. She reached in through the top of the globe. The plant writhed and snapped. It bites, she said, even as she reached for it. Only strangers, he said. It knows me. It should know you, too, even though it hasn't met you. She put one cautious fingertip to the tip of the bud, and the flower pressed itself against her skin in an evergreen kiss. Even though it hasn't met me, she echoed, and the breath of her awe stirred the white fringe. It remembers you, he said, and he held the globe as the plant purred and nuzzled her hand. His eyes were kind and mischievous and as blue as the bud. I let it smell your chip. It remembers you, Flash. His eyes were her own, and yet not her own, and Flash knew she was entirely ready to find out exactly what that difference meant. She cocked a finger at him. 
Bang, she said. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Tina's and Caroline. Caroline, thank you so much. Tina, thank you again, thank you so much. Next up is, we have an interview with Graham Ainsley. Graham had this idea, this light bulb effect went off and they decided to open Space Merchants, a little online vintage paperback shop for science fiction and I guess fantasy and everything like that of, you know, like little paperback books. So Graham, it's it's quite unusual. It's not the thing I guess you want to do do when you left school there to set up an internet science fiction <laughs> secondhand bookshop. No, no, absolutely not. Um, no, it was only really something that kind of grew. I guess kind of in my mid twenties when I actually because I didn't really read a great deal of science fiction when I was younger, to be honest. And it was only really kind of my early twenties when I got introduced to some books, not actually as science fiction, I just got given books to read. And um, it transpired that they obviously, they, they were quite good science fiction choices. And um, I guess in my mid-twenties, late-twenties, it really, I kind of got quite obsessed with uh, the genre, I guess. And um, I started, I found myself collecting as opposed to just, you know, reading what I was buying. I was very quickly becoming, well probably, for want of a better word, a hoarder, and um, my to-read pile was getting bigger and bigger, and I realized I was actually enjoying just as much the the covers and the stories behind the books and the authors as much as I was the actual books themselves. Um, and so, I mean, my original uh, career, well, I said my original career, what I was doing for a good 10 years was um, I was in video games, actually, and... Um, which is quite far removed from what I'm doing now. Um, but yeah, I decided to take the plunge and change what I was doing and finally get into books and book selling and hence the shop. You know what? Um, and it's honestly, Graham, it, it, it sounds like it was exactly the same as what, you know, for me as well. It's at almost the point where you don't read the actual stories. Do you know what I mean? You kind of, it's just the, the book itself and you think, you know, and it's the kind of, just having the, like an old vintage, you know, just having that book there on the shelves. And it's funny, mind, I've went full circle there now and there's hardly any books in. It's all digital for me. So right. when you set up the Space Merchants, was, were you just basically selling your collection? No, I, I did set out to, that was an idea because I'd spoken to a couple of um booksellers who did similar, who tried to kind of instill, there's a great shop in um, Edinburgh, Transreal Fiction, who um, sells predominantly its, its new books, but very much tried to sell an old collection to kind of kickstart a, a used section in their shop. So I did have that in mind, but I, I knew that I would need more than that. I knew I would also need to get experience in buying lots of job lots and experience in getting hold of those books. So I did start, let's have a think, a good kind of six, eight months before I really um, dived into making the website. I started to build stock up and um, very quickly transformed the spare room in my flat into a uh, <laughs> depository of, uh, of books and boxes. So is it, is it just online, the space? It is, 
Yeah, I'm, the I really when I when I kind of left games and I, I really wanted the goal was to have a brick and mortar shop. I I mean the the, the inspiration behind it all is um, a brick and mortar shop called the Fantasy Centre in that was in North London um, for many many years, and I used to live nearby. Um, and I, they closed down in, so I think 2009. Um, and I was really incredibly heartbroken when they closed. And that was a huge part of why I wanted to do this was because that was, to my knowledge, that was the last, um, dedicated kind of used bookshop for science fiction and fantasy and horror. Um, I think not just in London, but I think at one, I think they might've claimed that in Europe, in fact, um, Maybe I might be wrong there, but um, so when they closed, uh, yeah, it was really heartbreaking. And so that was it. I really wanted to, I really wanted to kind of bring that back somehow. So I very much tried to go down the route of opening a brick and mortar shop. But as I'm sure, well, as you might imagine, it's incredibly expensive, incredibly risky. And um, considering I didn't have any real solid book selling experience up to that point, I decided that the the slightly safer approach to do this would be to start online, um, which would allow me to kind of build up hopefully a an an, an audience and a and a base to, you know, fingers crossed in if this works and people buy books and they like it, then um in time I can hopefully open a real shop. Um, but yeah, so that that would be that would be the dream, yeah. So you know, like you say, we're online there now. You've got to kind of take into account then people from you know, say the United States, Australia buying yeah. books. Postage Indeed. must just be. Does it put people off? Do you think, or have you getting a way well, around that? To, to start off with, I'm I'm using a, a website um, like Builder, so I had to. I'm kind of resigned to the limitations in in that. So to start off with, um, I've only been able to offer uh, delivery to the UK. Um, so it's to do with the way the checkout works and the just the the shopping basket stuff operates, um, which has been relatively simple. Um, but lately, I've started to do some tests, and I'm finally shipping to the states, which is great. And hopefully, if that works out, um, well, I'm going to make a big song and dance to that because that's that's great news. And a lot of people have asked all over if I would um, ship to them. Um, but yes, it's incredibly, it's really surprising how much um, delivery charges you know, can be, not just in the UK, in the States as well. Um, it's a lot of money, um, which, which is really, you know, very annoying. Um, but there doesn't seem to be much in, in a way of getting out of that. Um, I just remember, you know, you know I've, I've dealt a couple of times with like postage from America and it's just, yeah. and it could be anywhere. Do you know what I mean? I remember yeah. we, uh, I don't want to brag, but when we won the Hugo, you know, yeah. I had to get that shipped from Australia. And right. It's just like, you what? How much? Yeah. Do you know what oh, I mean? Great. I mean, yeah, I mean, even, even the cheapest, cheapest um, shipping, um, I think the cheapest one they offer, and um, they say that they're going to get you, get it to you in 60 days. And even that's kind of double what any kind of UK um, delivery might be. And it's not, it's not guaranteed. It's not tracked. Um, there's very low insurance. So it's, um, yeah, you, it's kind of a struggle to make that viable. But, I mean, I've had people who 
are just really keen to get these books and who can't find these books and who are, have been more than happy to to pay that just to get um, to get some. So so hopefully, kind of that that's the case. I think I think that's the kind of the one saving grace with the space merchants. You know what I mean? It is that kind of people are still after these paperback books, and yeah. when you get them, do you know what I mean? It brings yeah. up, it conjures up all sorts of kind of almost romantic that's, things. You know what I mean? You've got yeah, this book in your hand, you know, from say a twenty year ago or something. You know what, Graham? I'm, I'm interested. Does it sometimes you know when you sell a book, do you think, oh, I don't want to give that one away? That you know what I mean? <laughs> or- that's a Bradbury. All the time. I, I had, I really struggled when I was buying stock in. That was a really difficult time because I was, I was doing that while I was still at my old job. So it, I found it incredibly easy to, to kind of get this box of books and ended up, I would like make two piles. I'd make the, the, the keep pile and the shop pile. Um, and so, yeah, too easy. I think I was a little bit, too, <laughs> it went a bit too much, but um, I've gone a lot better since. And I, I mean, because my my library is already too big. I, I I don't read anywhere as near as much as I want to. So I'm, I've been quite good recently at being able to look at the great stuff that comes in and and put it, and actually be quite excited about putting it on the shop, so other people can see it and other people can look at it and hopefully buy it. Um, but yeah, at first that was uh, that was quite a problem. So where then? Graham, and I don't, please don't give any secrets away or anything like that. But where do you get these books from? Do you know what I mean? You're not kind of because right. I, I tell you what I used to I used to do like oh you know oodles ago is go around secondhand bookshops, yeah. you know like your Oxfam's and stuff like that. Oh, but yeah, yeah. They've now cottoned on. You know Oxfam's yeah. cottoned on and put the slap the price yeah, that's up. That's Certain that's that's one way. I to be honest, that's not where I get most of my books. But I still do. But as you say, so many of them. You know, the Red Cross Oxfam are actually quite good at knowing when they've got a good book, actually, you know, and they, and they price it accordingly. So it's not very easy to find um, bargains or uh, in there anymore. Um, so I do occasionally find books in the odd shop here and there. I mostly have bought um, job lots of books, um, a lot of books off eBay, just people selling collections. That's where a lot of it comes from is people selling older collections deciding that they're, you know, downsizing um, and getting rid of maybe uh, relatives' collections and estates. Um, so a lot of it comes from those. And actually, I found nearly all of the digests, the old SF magazines I've got, were actually from the Fantasy Center, funnily enough. When they, when they closed down, um, they sold their collection or most of their collection to a couple of chaps funnily enough, in North London. Um, and when I was setting this all up, I managed to track them down, and they still had most of them. Um, so I was able to kind of buy back a lot of the old um, analogs and fantasy and sci-fi magazine. Um, so a, a big part of the, um, the magazine stock came from the old shop, which was nice. So what's Grinman, what's a good seller? Are the magazines a good seller? You know, like, like you say, the, the analogues and Asimovs and stuff like that. Sure. Or is, is it your books, you know, your, kind of, your little tatty uh, paperbacks? Sure. At the moment, it's the books. It's very much the novels. It's, um, they seem, it seems a lot of, I mean, very much, you know, Vonnegut and Philip K. Dick um, and Bradbury, of course. It's, it's the more recognisable um, novels seem to be selling the best. The... 
the magazines not so much um which i'm really hoping to kind of push more in the new year and the start of next year because for me they are i just think they might be even more the most special thing about it the thing i love the most but um hopefully we'll have to see if other people agree but yeah so far it's very much the books you know it's funny because ages ago as well i got i stumbled across a collection and i I got myself and it was like analog from i don't know when but it was like and this this fella had never missed an, an like an issue, but it was something yeah. like nineteen. Yeah. You know, you talked about probably the thirties or something like that, right oh, up until like say, oh, I'd guess say eighty seven, eighty eight. You know, every yeah. one, and I got them, and it wow. drove the wife mad. Do you know what I mean? It's a lot. It's a lot of it's a lot it's of just, um, it's a lot of space. Lot of yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and I think as as well, that's probably where you know my kind of love as well grew from it. You know, like you see, you can't read all that, but you can kind of certainly you know just get absorbed in it. And um, maybe yeah. somewhere along the line, that's where Starship Sova kind of came from because mm. this collection, honestly, you're talking. I, I can't imagine what your. I'm hoping you've got a bigger kind of premises now to keep all these, but my kind of spare yeah. room, just yeah. with them analogues, you know, you're probably yeah. talking about seven or eight boxes. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's on the shop is maybe only 20% of what I've got in stock, to be honest. I've still, I've, I've got boxes and boxes and boxes full of, um, of old digest that I'm slowly listing and getting on the shop because there's so many. Um, and yeah, I've, I've run out of space already. I, I just about fit into my spare room and I just about sit down at the desk. Um, and that's about it. So tell us then, Graham, what's, what's a typical working day for you? Because is this the day job then now? Is it, Graham? This is, you put, this is, you've jumped in and this is all your eggs in one basket. Uh, yeah, at the moment it is. Um, it's been, it's been slow. It's been, it, it's been very difficult to kind of get this started. I've, as I said, I've not done. I had not done this before. Um, building a website was new. Book selling is quite new, so um, quite risky. But to start off with, yes, it's been my full-time gig. Um, and so that's what I think. Uh, at the moment, what's happening is um, I'm doing lots and lots and lots of scanning. Um, so much so, in fact, I'm kind of scanning, as we said, all those digests. I'm trying to get on the shop. Um, so I make a point of making sure that every single item on the shop um, is scanned and has a very, very nice high-res image. Um, the, amount, the amount of detail that kind of goes in, uh, it takes me a very, very long time to, to list items, which is, you know, it's one of those things I've learned, I've very much learned as I've gone along. Um, I wanted to make sure that the site and the, or the product looked great, and also, I wanted to make sure that there was lots of detail about the content. I wanted to make sure that the content of every book and magazine was written down and the publication date and the cover artist as well. That was hugely important for me. So it takes a long, quite a long time to uh, list items. So uh, at the moment, I'm still doing that. I'm very much trying to kind of get through more and more stock and list it. Um, which is taking a long, long time. You know, that's so, actually, that you can just tell a, a kind of true fan as well. You know, once again, there's much detail. But I was just thinking that, you know, you put all that effort in. And honestly, yeah. this, I love the site. The site's excellent. You know, right. like you said, the, the images and everything are just, it, it makes you want to buy. Do you know what I mean? Oh, wonderful. But, you know, you can see, you, you do all that. And then, bang, your book's sold. And then that's yeah. it. You know what I mean? Well, that, yeah, that's it. It's, it's a bit top of ledge because... 
I've had that, for example, I, I remember sp- I spent however long it was putting a book on recently and somebody bought it really quickly. And a part of me, <laughs> and a part of me was like, well, that's not fair. Nobody has really had the time to appreciate <laughs> what I put in. <laughs> but at the same time, what I'm doing so much, so it's been so much of a struggle uh, this year putting it together because I'm, I'm doing it all from scratch and I'm making all of my, my databases and templates from scratch. But What's, what hopefully will work in my favor in time is that um, I save all of the all of the content I'm making is being saved. That's so, what I was. That's what I was. I was going to say if you get like I say a Bradbury book and you sell it, hopefully it. down the line you get another one. You think ah, go to my database exactly and pull it up. That's exactly it. So basically, when yeah, whenever I get that book or digest again, I've got all the content. It takes me. Uh, you know, no time at all to just relist that book, just do a new picture because I'm always going to make sure that the scan is of the actual item. I never use stock images. Um, but so that's the only thing that will change will be the scan, the actual content I've got saved. Um, so that's the plan. So yeah, in time, um, it will become easier and quicker for me to, to list and turn this stuff over. So how long do you spend in Graham, looking for books, you know what I mean? Like you say, ah. is it, because that's, be, honestly, for me as well, it's like, it's almost, you know, I'm so close to nearly doing that as well, but it's the excitement yeah. of like buying, do you know what I mean? Mm. Do you have to sometimes stop yourself spending too yeah, much money? Very much. You know I, I got to a point, I got to a point about, about a month after launch, I realized that I probably had, I probably had enough stock to, uh, to just, <laughs> To just go on with for quite a few months. I, I stopped buying job lots. Um, I still look. I'm still very active. I still actively kind of keep an eye on all of my um, eBay searches, which is an incredibly useful tool. Um, so I'm, def- I'm always keeping an eye on the market, and I, I do pick up the odd thing. But I, I realized that I had more than enough. I, I wasn't listing what I had very quickly at all, so I've got plenty to, to add to the site. Um, and for the time being, I've held off from buying big, big job lots that I've seen just because I don't, I don't need them. And I, well, more importantly, I can't actually get through listing them. <laughs> How are you getting then, Graham? Like you say, I knew you. I think I knew you from Twitter. I'm sure that's where I came yeah. seen you first. How are you getting yeah. your name and about? Because that's what I would love. Well, I mean, to I'll, I'll be honest this. with you. I mean, that's where definitely that's where I'm struggling is to to kind of get the the shop name out there and get the news out there to people who hopefully like it. I mean, Twitter's been brilliant. Um, I, I wasn't much of a, um, a Twitter guy before I started the shop, but I, I start, I use it now and, um, it's wonderful. I mean, I've met so many people, not only in the UK, but in the States who are fans and who have enjoyed what I'm doing and have given me great kind of ideas as well. Um, so Twitter's huge. I mean, I use Facebook as well because obviously Twitter is Twitter's wonderful for what it is. But when you actually want to say anything of substance, um, it's obviously quite restricted. So um, I have a, we have a great Facebook page where we kind of elaborate on kind of fun, relevant stories to do with sci-fi and space. And um, yeah, we're just trying very hard to kind of connect the dots and, and meet the right people and say hello to the right people. Um, but that is proving quite difficult. And I, I probably kind of was quite naive about how difficult it would be to uh, to start. Oh, it, and, I mean, don't get us wrong. It's like you, you kind of come against that brick wall all the time. Do you know what I mean? And sure. even now, you know, you kind of, 
I, I go on a lot of times on Google Plus and, you know, post a comment. And inevitably it gets, you know what I mean, that someone says, you know, this is spam. And yet, you know, even like say, down the line, you're thinking, oh, for God's sake. Do you know what I mean? There's like, there's a lot of big, I found on there as well is, you know, big groups, you know, like I think they're called communities over there. Right. So you can yeah. just like search science fiction, join and then start posting. Do you know what I mean? So Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult to find the right communities, I think. And also I found... I mean, the um, FF Chronicle forum I found quite late because um, I still, I still, find, I still speak to uh, the chaps who ran the old uh, fantasy center shop quite regularly, um, which is wonderful. Um, but it, it was have been quite difficult to connect with the the right communities of people. I mean, I remember I got a warning off SF Chronicles ages ago when yeah. I first started, you know what I mean? It was like, yeah. I think it was, I don't know, because they've been going for rudels of time as well. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure at the end of 2006, in the inbox came a warning. Do you know what I mean? I was, really? I was, I was banned once from Facebook. Do you know what I mean? Oh, That's, wow. Oh, I've done that. Great, man. You haven't lived yet, man, until you're banned well, from yeah, Facebook. I, mean, I haven't, no, I didn't even... <laughs> I didn't even imagine the idea of getting banned from these places yet. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be as, as polite as uh, as possible. I think you've just got to run that risk. You know what I mean? And now yeah. it's funny enough. I kind of have to sign in, you know, and start like saying yeah. Facebook. I like Facebook now. I never used to because right, of the kind okay. of you know because they kind of kicked us off. But I quite like Facebook. Sometimes I think sometimes more than Twitter to kind of get. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I find it. Well, I, I just. Twitter is great for connecting, but again, it's just too restrictive. And I, I really, I prefer to go into a bit more detail about kind of books and stories occasionally. And I prefer to, well, just simply, I just want to write more about them. Um, and obviously Twitter doesn't really let you do that. And I find Facebook has quite a nice balance of, you know, of having text and images. Um, and uh, yeah, so I find that really important and I do quite enjoy that side of it, I must say. I know what you need as well, mind you, Graham, here, just to kind of help get the name in about, you need a podcast. Honestly, you'd, you'd be quite <laughs> yeah. surprised how many people, do you know what I mean? Because this is sure, such yeah. a kind of lovely little nostalgic trip for them, do you know what I mean? So yeah. to even get more absorbed in that kind of world of like the old vintage paperback, you know, yeah, to kind of do a, like a weekly podcast on, just on, yeah. you know, new stuff you're getting in, well, stuff that's well, gone. That's it. I mean, even just yesterday, the, the smallest things can create such interesting stories. Like just yesterday... Was it two nights back? I was talking to um, the chap, the, the guy who runs, uh, who writes SF Ruminations in the States. Do you know it? I'm not too sure. Yo- Joachim, forgive me if I get his name wrong. Joachim Boaz, um, and he kind of he blogs on um, old uh, classic SF, and he will occasionally do blog posts looking at um, themes in cover art. So, and they're really, really wonderful to look at. And that's something that I really, I absolutely loved a bit. And it's hopefully something I will do in time as well. And um, we were just talking about a range of covers that had uh, models where, where people used to use little tiny um, models instead of illustrations, like for little models of spacemen or aliens on the covers. And so, and then the next morning, I just happened to find one um, on the cover of Analog, there was an old analog that had a little space, a bunch of little spacemen, almost like Lego spacemen on the front with a, with a little Lego spaceship behind it. And it looked great. So I just shared that. We were talking about that. And then someone else um, mentioned that a few months later in Analog, there were lots of complaint letters about how accurate the little Lego spacemen were. And, um, and I, had, I managed to find the Analog. I also had that one. 
And so out of that kind of small bit, that fun kind of little sharing moment, I found this hilarious complaint letter about somebody's scale model of Mars. <laughs> and, and that for me was like, that was, that was funny. The cover, was, the cover looked great. But this story and this letter that this person had written in complaining about how accurate the sand texture was and the fact that the depth of field wasn't, wasn't good enough was, for me, I mean, you should only find that in science fiction, I think. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> wonderful. What? You know, I'm looking at your site there now then, Graham. So what's <laughs> sci-fi theatre? What's all that ah, about? Wonderful. Um, so... I, I always wanted to um, start a film club uh, that was uh, dedicated to science fiction film. I found that there are quite a lot of film clubs in London, but what I found is that you've got lots and lots of horror film clubs, and then you've got lots of film clubs that kind of um, where, where the premise is to kind of watch kind of uh, you know not silly films, but just. And they call, there's one particular one called Crap Film Club where the idea is you go and watch something that's quite corny or cheesy and kind of laugh along with it. Uh, but there, there, were, there were no actual film clubs um, showing good classic sci-fi uh, from a standpoint of not actually kind of laughing at them, but actually, you know, being quite respectful of them um, and loving towards them. So I always wanted to start one. And so, where are we now? December. So last month, we had our first one. We had our pilot screening, um, which was Invasion of the Body Statues, the 1978 version, um, because it had just come out on Blu-ray that week. And um, we had that in North London. That went incredibly well. And um, the pub loved it. The audience loved it. So from January next year, we're going to start that. As, it's going to be a regular uh, monthly film club where I pick... Um, what will be what I hope will be like a well-received, good science fiction classic film, and and get I get to show it off to people, um, and that, I'm I'm really excited about that because it's it's really it's a real it's a great opportunity to kind of get people in a room um, to talk about this stuff and enjoy this stuff, um, and I guess for for lack of having a brick and mortar bookshop where I can do that, this is at the moment this is kind of the next best thing best thing for me Graham, that um, is a cracking idea mind you you know what I mean and take along a few books as well do you know what I mean take a, little, yes, yep. take a little table along that's do you it know what I mean? so how's the logistics of that working did you say you were in a pub or have you just got like some big massive yeah. TV screen in a, in a, well, in a lounge I or something found, I basically tracked down um, a friend of mine used to run a horror f- uh, film club at a particular pub in uh, London, and they were already kitted out with um, a really nice big screen, really nice surround sound system in a back room. So it's almost it's almost too good to be true. And they show sport there usually, um, but they're very keen to kind of um, show films and whatnot. So I approached them with the idea. Um, to be honest, that was probably the easiest part of it. They were very very keen to do it. Uh, they were very um, happy to help kind of promote it and put posters up. Oh, that's something else I should mention. Um, and so that was actually quite easy. The tricky, I found the trickiest thing was to, you know, get the license and kind of make sure that was all okay. Because I'm, I'm obviously making sure that it's all done uh, properly and officially. Um, so getting the license was quite tricky. Figuring out, I found that figuring out who owns particular films can be very, very difficult, which I've 
which I think is very surprising, but um, that's what I seem to be up against at the moment. Um, trying to track down the right to uh, the Stepford Wives, which I'm showing in January, um, has been incredibly difficult, for example. So how do you how do you do? Do you have to kind of, I don't even know that anything of like, say, this little part of logistics. Have you got to go to someone and just say, I would like to play this in a pub in London? <laughs> yes, we might have a hundred people. Is that something like? Yeah, that? yeah, pretty much. You, um, there are a couple of there are a couple of main distributors who have quite useful websites where you can you go on. It's always good to check them first. You go on, you put the film name in, and if it's in their library, the more often than not, it's relatively easy to get the license from them. But when, for example, with something like Stepford, neither of these neither of the distributors had Stepford. And so it was kind of a bit of a wild goose chase going from, you know, the BBFC to the ICO, which I think is the Independent Cinema Organization. I can't remember now what it is. Um, asking, very politely asking for help in tracking down who might own it. Um, so, yeah, when it looks like certain films just drop off the radar. And if they do that, then it becomes quite hard to uh, pinpoint uh, who to speak to about it. Because you do have to say, like, I want to show this in this place to potentially this many people on this night. Um, please, uh, can I do that? And just, I mean, I hope you don't mind his prying, Greg, but how, how much would something like that cost? Not that I'm going to kind of set it oh, up. No, in, no, no, it's, it it's quite interesting. It varies from distributor, and it also changes if, it's, if you're asking to show uh, like a television episode, which is like an hour or full film. But roughly, you end up, the license... The license for a film tends to cost about 90 to 100 pounds. Um, but what, what they will all do is if you, you pay afterwards. So if, um, if in time you get back to them and say, oh, it also varies if, you've, if you're charging for tickets. Um, more often than not, if you are not charging and you're making free entry, then you can usually show the film for free. Um, or there will be a nominal charge. Um, there usually is a nominal charge though so what I'm trying to do um, is just at least make up the license cost so I do charge us a very small ticket fee of like three pounds but that's just so I can pay the license back Um, and so it kind of depends how many there are but so if you end up having like 200 people actually and you make you know two three hundred quid of ticket sales then you have to give them a bit more but the, the bare minimum is usually about 90 or 100 pounds to get a license that's just a fantastic. I hope somewhere down the line you'll you'll run Dark Star. <laughs> oh well, I'm funny enough because I I watched that recently. I, I hadn't seen it before. I must confess, and I watched that a couple of months ago. It's uh, it's an in, interesting film. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's an interesting one. There are some there are some amazing scenes in it, um, but I, it was very difficult not to feel not to be quite. Not to find the like the alien ball yeah. quite jarring, <laughs> I must say. Um, but some wonderful moments in it, there really are. So, Graham, then, where do, where do we go from here from the space merchants and what's, what's your goals and your aspirations? Um, well, the first few months of next year, I'm really hoping that the film night kind of kicks up a gear and catches on. Um, I'm hoping to... We'll also create, we can also create um, new original film posters for each of the nights as well. 
Um, so that's something that I'm working really hard to to do, um, get in place. And I'm really hoping that that kind of, you know, captures the imagination, hopefully. Um, I've got lots and lots and lots of digests still to list and put in the shop, which will keep me very, very busy. Um, but depending how that goes, I'm probably going to have to find some sort of um, other um, way of generating income because it's still quite slow. So um, I can see me picking up some sort of um, you know part-time work to kind of help it all along. So that's, that's probably going to happen in a new year as well. Well, honestly, Graham, like I say, good luck to you. Do you know what I mean? I just hope, you know, it all kicks off. I'd like to see if we can get, you know, sales from America as well. That would be just fantastic. Yeah, well, you know. yeah, fingers crossed. I'm going to get some feedback this week on a couple of um, uh, packages I sent recently, actually. So if that all works out, then I'll, um, yeah, I'll let everyone know on Twitter and Facebook that we, we can finally properly ship to the US at least um, and then hopefully Europe. So, yeah, that will also be... That will also be great because um, I've had a lot of people ask and it's been, I had, I, I'd never wanted to, it's, I never intentionally restricted delivery at all. It was just uh, limitations with my, with the website I was using. Um, Send us over a, um, <laughs> like an ad and I'll stick an ad on the site as well. You know what I mean? So we can, oh, get, super. We can get some traffic your way as well. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Oh, listen, That'd honestly, really just great. good luck with this. This will be fantastic. You know what I mean? I just, when I seen it on Twitter, you know, you kind of follow it links and, and it's like, oh man, do you know what I mean? But like I say, I've turned the corner there now because it's just, you literally <laughs> had to, do you know what I mean? It was one of my rooms was just chock a block of the yeah. kind of old vintage stuff. And it was just, you know, you, long comes kids and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. so now it's yeah, digital, digital for me. But listen, good luck to you. Thank you so much. Well, take good care. And like I okay. said, it'll be just nice to kind of follow, follow your trail and what happens. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. There you go. I'll put a link on the Grahams. I'll put a link on everyone who wants to come over there and see, you know, Diane, Graham. You know, good luck to you, Graham. It was a, 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 it's a brave venture, sir. A brave venture. So that is Starship Sova's 320. Like I say, very big day for Starship Sova. We are opening Sofa Notes up. For the very first time, a premium members club. And like I say, I have got oodles of stories there put down in e-story format at the moment, ready to roll. I've got interviews planned. I've actually just been, today is Monday. Show comes out on Wednesday. I'm interviewing Gareth Powell again. Akak Makak, you know, the, the monkey science fiction magazines, or science magazines, books. Interviewing Gareth again to talk about that. And Gareth gives us a story as well. And like I say, it's just going to be ongoing, constantly putting in content in there. You've t- I've told you my ambition is to get as much content in there as possible. And I'm kicking off to a good start with it. So please think about Sofa Notes. That would be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.